0: Last week, uh, if you were here, you know that Pastor Dave preached from Psalm 74, and in doing that, he was looking at the whole idea that the uh, nation of Israel felt like God had left them, that he'd rejected them forever, and they were pleading for God to remember them. God, remember us. This week, it's a little bit different because we've uh, turned to another psalm, Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is a, a much longer psalm. We won't read all of it today, we'll try and do parts of it, but uh, I'd encourage you to go home and read the whole thing uh, so that you get the big picture. Uh, But what Asaph is doing in Psalm 78, he's telling us that we need to remember God's story. And uh, just in case you didn't know, my name's Jim Wilson, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) You guys go, who is that guy? He doesn't look like the other people here. Yeah. I'm... I'm usually only here at nights because I uh, come to the evening service, but uh, because I'm here today in the morning, you get a different face. So let's look at Psalm 78, page 488 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we, uh, we welcome you to take that home with you. If you have some Bibles at home, please leave that one here. Let's look at uh, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph. Asaph was one of the premier psalmists. He lived at the same time as David, and he, uh, he wrote a bunch of psalms. This one, uh, a masculine is one of his words that really we don't know exactly what it means, but it comes from a root that means to contemplate, to think about. So let's think about this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might, the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commands our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, And arise and tell them to their children, so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. God, we're thankful that you are with us. That your word is right here with us. That we have so much to look at and to ponder so much to tell us about you and about your love and your care for us. God, help us to understand that today, to understand uh, where we forget you, to understand that the incredible things you've done in the past are capable of being done today. Uh, Help us, God, to have uh, ears and hearts that are open to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you grew up in the, uh, the era of stranger danger. All of you had that training someplace? I, I didn't get it. I, sorry. In, in my time, they didn't have uh, that particular phrase. But I'm sure that you educate your kids that uh, when strangers offer you things, when strangers want you to get in their car, when strangers want you to go with them, that could be a bad thing. And so you're supposed to be really careful around strangers. But what if your children happen to see God as a stranger? What if their perception of him is that he can't be trusted? What if we forget about his awesome power, his saving love? See, our inclination is to avoid strangers. We're supposed to get away from them. They may hurt us, they may do bad things to us. We're supposed to run away and refuse their invitations. How much of our life do you think we may have spent trying to avoid God because we didn't know Him? We didn't know what He's really like or we forgot what He's really like. And if we are that way and we haven't repeated God's story to our children, what if they have a perception of God that I'm not sure I can trust Him because I don't really know Him? So what we've been told by this psalm is that we are supposed to remember to tell God's story. Because if we don't tell God's story, it gets forgotten. When Asaph writes this psalm, he's laying out out the entire redemptive history of Israel from the time that they were in Egypt until the time they were in the Promised Land up until their second king, David. And he's using that to tell us to give ear, pay attention, because I have some really important things to tell you things we will not hide from our children, but we're going to tell the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might. Because He's the one who established the nation of Israel. He's the one that gave them the law. And the law wasn't about, well, if you just be perfect by doing this law, then I'll love you. The law was, I love you, and here are some things that will be different if you understand that I love you. You'll obey me because of that. And then he told them to pass it on to the next generation. If you read those first few verses again, you'll see there's like five generations in there. It isn't just to your generation and your kids, it's to their kids and the kids after them. This is supposed to go on for eternity. We're supposed to remember to tell God's story. When we don't have confidence in Israel, we became like those people in verses 7 and 8. They forget the works of God. They are people who are stubborn and rebellious, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose heart was not faithful to God. And Then in verse 9, we see what happened. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. So what's happening is Asaph is using the Ephraimites as an example of all of Israel, an example of what happens when they forget and then they disobey God. Because the Ephraimites have been told by God, along with the whole nation of Israel, when you go into the promised land, you are to drive out all the inhabitants there. And as you do that, I will go before you and I'll make sure that they leave. Well, that didn't happen. If you go back to the first chapters of Judges, what you find is all the tribes fell short. They all made a decision somewhere along the way that they didn't have to keep going to battle every day to drive those people out, and they chose to try and make peace with them and compromise, and God had told them, don't marry them, don't live with them, they have defiled the land, I want them out, and they didn't listen to God, they didn't trust him. They failed to keep telling God's story. And what happened? Well, God became the stranger to them. They were actually avoiding God, avoiding intimacy with Him. Now, the point of all this is that there are generations that need to hear God's story. He doesn't want us to feel like He's a stranger because when we do that, we feel like He doesn't have our best interests at heart. We feel like, well, he just wants me to obey a bunch of rules. He's just trying to get me to do stuff. And we know when we read about God through the whole Bible, we found that his love is furious. He wants us to have that relationship with him that keeps us from thinking of him as a stranger and running away from him. He wants us to understand that he's running towards us. He's the one coming to save us we're supposed to tell the next generation so they will have hope in God. Now, that word hope in this passage isn't about, well, I wish God would do something. It's confidence. It's trust in him. We can't hide those things from our descendants. And God gives us some commands to that effect. He wants all those secrets to be passed on about the family. I don't, I don't know what your family's like, but, uh, but I know that it's dysfunctional. I'm not being mean. I just know that that's life, right? We are all sinners, and we all have problems in our families, and there are things that we just don't tell other people about what's going on in our family, right? Family secrets. Uh, God doesn't do that, right? (laughs) We read this, and we go, man, those are the most messed up people in the world. Uh, But God puts it all right there out in front of us. God's family has problems. God's family is dysfunctional. He wants us to know that because he wants to demonstrate that his character overcomes all that, that his rescue is going to overcome all that. And so he gives them some commands. It mentions up there in one of the first verses, he said, uh, he established Jacob, he gave them commands to pass on to their children. Well, here's what he told them. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That means you should be thinking about them all the time. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What can we do to remember to tell God's story in accordance with those commands. One of the things you see in the Bible is that God doesn't believe in neutrality in education. He doesn't believe that we should allow our kids to not be forced to do anything. You don't have to listen to this. You can make up your own mind when you're old enough. The problem with that is, is that when we are not instructing our children, other influences are instructing our children. And those other influences get the upper hand. And if you haven't ever looked at these statistics about what happens when kids go to college and they get away from mom and dad and the influence of mom and dad, it is incredible the loss of faith that they go through. And so in order to keep that from happening, we have to do our part as parents and as adults around kids to teach them God's story, to tell them God's story. And that's what those verses are about. And so when do you do that? Well, when you sit down at meals together. I hope you are intentionally making time to have at least one meal together as a family every day. I know this is difficult. I know that we have all these conflicting schedules, but it's an incredible time, an incredible opportunity for you to say to your kids, wow, you should have heard what happened to me today and to tell them how God was working in your life and to ask them, what's been going on in your life today? Well, where is God in the middle of that? How might God be doing something there? What has he done to help you? What can he do to help you? When you're outdoors, noticing that there are actually things out there that are beautiful, that God has created. He made them for our enjoyment, but he also made them for us to notice that there's a creator behind it, to notice that he cares enough to sustain this earth that wobbles on its axis, and if it didn't wobble the way that it wobbles... We'd all be dead. That's the truth. I mean, that's even the scientists know that. At bedtime, uh, it's just a wonderful opportunity to sit down and go, "What happened today? Did I, as a parent, sin against you? Will you forgive me for that? Can God forgive us for being the people that we are and doing the things we do? Can we pray for some things that you have to do tomorrow?" Can I tell you what God's been doing? There's just great opportunities built into our lives. Uh, When I moved to Texas, I moved here from Germany. And as you know, Germany is a small country. It's about the size of Michigan. And everything is really compacted into little villages. And in our little village, we could walk to the bank. We could walk to the restaurants. uh, We would walk the dog to the bakery every day. You know, that kind of stuff. And when I came to Texas, it was like... uh, if you try to walk anywhere, you're going to die, <laughs> either from the heat or from being run down. And, and so we spend all this time in our cars. And I know our cars have graduated to the entertainment. <laughs> I mean, we got the videos in there, right? we got music. We've got other stuff to occupy the kids when they're in there. But what a great opportunity to talk to your kids, to let them know through what's going on around you You know, God's at work. There are things happening to play God's stories through those music systems, to talk to them about those things, to remember them, everyday situations. Basically, what this passage is telling us in Deuteronomy is God commanded them to spend intentionally as much time as they could retelling God's story so their kids would know God. What if you're not familiar with the stories? Well, I've got a great book here. I know it looks like a kid's book, right? But this is one of the best adult books you can pick up. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, the subtitle there's Every Story Whispers His Name. That is Jesus' name. And uh, it doesn't have every story in the Bible in it, but it does a great job of helping us see that Jesus is in the Bible all the way through. And it does a great job helping you get an overview of what God was doing through those stories. So I really encourage you, If you haven't seen this, uh, really, I mean, great resource for any adult to read. So there's a way for you to learn the story so you can can tell your kids. Second thing we need to know is that we're part of the story. Uh, We are not the story, okay? It's God's story in the Bible. But God is incorporating, He's folding our stories into His story that's going on for eternity. And what's happening in our lives Uh, becomes part of what God is doing. And if you extrapolate that a little bit, you see that he even uses the bad stuff we do to glorify him eventually because he redeems it. How many of you have had the pleasure of uh, being at the airport and getting a, a full body scan in recent time? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah, I haven't fortunately had that opportunity. I haven't flown much lately. But I look at that and I can only imagine the violation you feel when you know that there's somebody in a room that you can't see looking at a computer monitor, seeing things you don't want them to see and you don't have an option. Standing before God's story and letting our lives be compared to that is a lot like those full body scans, only in a totally different way because God is not some stranger looking at us. God knew us before we were born. He made us to be the people we are. And so when, when we are being examined by God's word, he is trying to help us grow. He loves us. He cares about us. The stuff that he reveals, the stuff that he sees on his monitor are things that he wants to change to bring us into a closer relationship with him. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for, God, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, God wants to reveal to us what's going on inside of us. He wants us to know he's not a stranger. He doesn't need to be avoided. We don't need to avoid putting ourselves before him. We find out that the, uh, the nation of Israel, as we read this psalm, uh, was stubborn and rebellious. That's what we discover he gave them food in the wilderness. He gave them water in the wilderness, and all they could do was complain about what they didn't have. They were sinning against Him. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them water, He gave them manna to eat. They still complained, they wanted more. He gave them more eat than they, meat than they could possibly eat, and they still complained. So God disciplined them, and what did they do? Then they lied to God and said, "Oh, we repent, we won't do it again." But all they wanted was relief from the discipline. They just wanted to be out of an uncomfortable situation. They weren't really repenting in their hearts. They kept on doing that for a long time. Eventually, uh, God rejected them. They tested him again and again and again. They insulted him. I mean, what? How could you come to God and say, "Oh sure, you can break rocks in the wilderness, and make water come out of them, but you, can you give us meat?" That's what they said. I mean, I can't even imagine saying that to God. Okay, but we're going to get to us in a minute. We see that they're ungrateful, that they complained, that they insulted him, that they challenged him, that they just wanted relief instead of really wanting him. They were just bad people, right? It's easy to see their sin. We look at them and go, "Yep, those are fallen people." Well, the problem with that is if we just look at them and don't realize that we need to step into that body scanner and let God look at us, uh, then we are missing something really beneficial to us. A few weeks ago I was in Pastor Dave's office and we were standing in front of the calendars back there trying to update the calendars for upcoming things and and Dave mentioned that on March 16th somebody else was preaching and he hadn't yet found anybody for March 9th that's today and uh, and in passing he says, would you be interested in doing that I'm like uh, I'll, I'll pray about that and uh, and in case you don't know that's one of the scariest things ever in my life is to prepare to stand before you and bumble through the word of God because uh, I really fear that I'm going to mess it up and you know anyway so I said, I'll pray about it, and they said, so, well, I need an answer tomorrow, <laughs> and so I went home and started reading Psalm 78, and I read the first time through, and went, well, as Israel, as usual, stubborn and rebellious Israel doing what they do, and uh, then I read it again, and then I read it again, and all of a sudden, this light went on me and said, yep, Jim, that's, that's you, Jim. That's you in there. You're the guy who forgets that I'm the God who did all these things. I am the God of awesome power and might who's been working, and I can do things that you can't even imagine. And I came to the conclusion that I needed to do this. I need to be here today talking to you about this. Uh, here's the point. God's stories instruct us. They teach us about ourselves. They teach us about him. They teach us about his character. And I find out, just like the characters in the Bible, that sometimes I forget, sometimes I rebel, sometimes I insult God, sometimes I just refuse to trust him. So how do we learn from those things in the Bible? Well, one of the words that's used to describe what Asaph is going to tell us here is parable. And a parable is a comparison of something to other parts of life, to reveal something about it. And what we have to do is make a parable out of our life and compare it to God's word and say, okay, how do I look compared to that? What's going on inside of me? There's a, there's a saying that we often use as experience is the best teacher. I really hope you don't believe that. Because <laughs> if you do believe that, then it means that everything that you ever want to learn, you have to go through some situation to learn it well. Otherwise, you haven't learned it well, right? Because you haven't had the best teacher. Uh, let's change that a little bit. This is what Dr. Howard Hendrick says. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. says, evaluated experience is the best teacher. In other words, we look at it, an experience whether it's in our life or somebody else's life or in the life of the Israelites and we say what happened there what did god do what did they do how does that compare to what god wants us to do how does that confront god's character how does it confront the sin in our lives we can do that with anybody's experience and it's really helpful especially when you're raising kids because they see stuff happen and helping them walk through it and see it from a biblical worldview is really a good idea. Evaluated experience reveals things in our lives like our fallen condition. The Israelites weren't the only sinners. We are too. Our hopeless situation. There is nobody that can rescue us except God. We cannot pick ourselves up. Our propensity to forget is revealed by evaluated experience. We look and go, oh, this is what's going on. And then we go, oh, wait a minute. I've seen this before. God's helped me through that before. Or he helped somebody else through that before. He's helped the Israelites get past that before. And our constant tendency is revealed to turn to idols. Because we're always looking for that thing that will give us comfort, that will make us feel like, okay, I, I can handle it. And that thing is God, and when we use anything else to do that, we are worshiping idols. Let me give you a great way to incorporate this into your life so that you can grow in this area, and that is to submit to the Bible in community. It's like the second thing on our big sign up there above the water coolers. <clears throat> the reason we emphasize small groups so much here at Grace is because we really believe that that is the very best way for you to grow up in Christ the very best way for you to hear God's stories, to remember them, to pass them on to others, to submit yourself to those stories, and to become part of the story growing in Christ. Because through being with other people, you get to evaluate experiences in their life, they get to evaluate experiences going on in your life, all in the context of God's word. And God's word is looking at us through His Holy Spirit. It's evaluating us. It's scanning us to see what's going on inside. Another way to do this, uh, one of the basic ways, is to subscribe to the Bible reading plan. By reading God's Word, you get more and more input from Him. You can do that on the city. Just go on the city and look down the left-hand column until you see the things about uh, growth in the Bible. Click on there and subscribe. And you know trouble's going to come you know, we, we talked about it in the song today. When trouble comes, God is coming too. It will come, and God is available to you. He is coming too. We need to look at what God has done. We need to evaluate what he's done in the past. We need to look at this to say, well, what did he do for other people? And ask the question to ourselves, okay, what can he do for me now? What can I do to live through this situation? Final thing we need to remember this is Jesus' story. It isn't just about us. And it isn't just God's story. The whole story is telling us Jesus. Jesus is the answer to these things. Near the end of the psalm, it looks like God is asleep. It looks like he's forgotten his people. Let me get a little background on that. Uh, we'll get to, to the verses there in a second. In 1 Samuel 4 the Philistines were winning the battle against Ephraim. And because the Philistines were winning, they decided they needed a new tactic. So they went home and made another plan. And at this time, Israel had the tabernacle, they had the Holy of Holies, and inside the Holy of Holies was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And God uh, made that the symbol of his presence with them. And so the and the Ark of the Covenant, every night there would be this pillar of fire above the Ark of the Covenant. And during the day, there would be this cloud demonstrating that God was present with them. And because Israel had so much success in the past, uh, they decided that, you know what, that Ark thing, if we took that into battle, we could win. It would turn back our enemies. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is that the object became their trust, not the God who was represented by the object. And so when they took the ark into battle, they lost, really lost, 30,000 of their soldiers were killed, and God at that point said, you've rejected me and I'm going to allow you to live in that rejection of me. You want to treat me like a stranger, like I'm not here, then I'll let you live that way for a while. It was a really sad day for them. Uh, they they were subjected to the sword. He vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their wit- widows made no lamentation. It was awful because they had been defeated because their trust in God had evaporated. So God's gone for a time. Now... Asaph, the poet, is going to poetically address how God comes back from that. In verse 65, then the Lord awoke us from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. God isn't drunk, okay? It's a metaphor to tell us that it's like a soldier went to sleep at night because he celebrated too much and he got drunk. And he wakes up the next morning to, to see that he's surrounded by enemies and coming out of his drunken stupor, he goes into a rage fueled by some of that alcohol and he defeats all his enemies. And it tells us, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. How did he do that? Because God didn't come down and miraculously intervene on their behalf. He did something else to give them hope. And it gives us hope in this psalm and shows us how this is Jesus' story. See, Ephraim was a great tribe, but they were rejected by God because they didn't trust him anymore. And God had said back in Genesis, when Jacob was giving blessings to his sons and to uh, Joseph's sons, he had said to Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah It's going to be an eternal reign that comes through the tribe of Judah. And here we start to find out what he was talking about because God, in rejecting Ephraim, brings a new king on the scene. Israel hadn't had a king up to this point. They had King Saul just before David, and he looked like a great king. They begged for a king like the rest of the nations, and God said, okay, in my grace, I'll give you that. And sometimes God's grace allows us things that we ask for that don't turn out so well because in God's grace, he wants us to see him more than he wants us to see the thing we ask for. Saul didn't have the character needed to lead the country, so God chose another king. His name was David. And he chose David, who was a sheep herder, who got that job in Israel, the teenagers, got that job right this is a lowly job this is the job that you give to the kids because the mighty warriors are out at battle and nobody else thought David was the right guy because he just herds sheep that's what he does but God said he's got a heart like mine and I'm going to make him the king of this nation and I'm going to do great things through him so in verse 67 he rejected the ten of Joseph He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. That uh, that metaphor about sheep is really interesting. David reigns 40 years. 40 years. Does that seem like a long time to you at this point in your life? Think of the history of Israel. Forty years is nothing. I mean, it's just amazing that a guy who reigned 40 years is considered the greatest king of Israel. When David took over as king, they were surrounded by enemies. They were defeated by the Philistines. They hadn't done what God asked them to do. And David comes on the scene as a mighty warrior And after 40 years, this little nation, this little unknown place called Israel, now ruled 50,000 square miles. They were rich. They were powerful. They were respected among the nations. And David led God's people through that entire 40 years, defeating all their enemies by God's strength. Just an incredible thing. So, David, the shepherd king is leading the people. How did he lead them? What does it tell us at the end there? With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. But let's back up to verse 52 for just a second. Let's see who started the shepherd metaphor. Verse 52, it's talking about God. Then he led his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. You see, God was shepherding them. Then he allowed David to be a shepherd to them. But what is all this pointing to? It's pointing to a coming shepherd. There's going to be another shepherd. God had promised this. He promised them that there would be somebody who would lead them eternally. If you look at John chapter 10, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read some portions of this. This is Jesus talking about himself. This is the hope that God was giving them through David because David's dynasty was going to be an eternal dynasty and it was going to result in Jesus coming from the line of David to rule forever. Jesus says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Shepherd leading his sheep. Then Jesus goes on to say. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the father knows me. And I know the father. And I laid down my life for my sheep. Jesus is the incredible fulfillment of all God's promises. He's the one who's going to rule the nations. He's the one who's going to rule in us. He's the one who's going to establish an eternal kingdom. Just an incredible promise through God. When we hear his voice, we follow him. Why? Well, first of all, he knows us just like he knows the Father. He knows more about us than anyone else could possibly know, and He loves us even though He knows all that about us. He's proved over and over again that we can trust Him. He gave His life for us so that we could trust Him. I, I've i never had much experience with livestock. I was kind of funny because I remembered last night that, oh yeah, our next door neighbor did have 40 uh, white-faced cattle and uh and those white-faced cattle merely became targets for, you know what Osage oranges are? You know, they hedge balls, we call them. You know, they get about that big, and we would throw those at the cows. And I guess that's why the cows didn't trust me. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I've, I've been uh, for the past couple of years hunting at this ranch up near Gatesville. And there's a, an 80-year-old guy who owns this ranch, has some cattle on it. And he lives in Cedar Park, so only he comes up to the ranch like once a week for a couple of days and spends the night to take care of his cattle and chores up there. And uh, after I'd been going up there for a while, uh, there's some circumstances came up and he couldn't be there, so he asked me to feed these protein pellets to the cattle when I went up there. You know, when I first started going up there, I'd show up in camouflage from head to foot with my crossbow and uh, the cattle would stand over there at a safe distance and just look at me like, "Uh, who are you? What are you doing here? You know, they actually looked kind of threatening and I was a little worried. So then when I say, okay, I'll feed them the pellets when I'm up there, Uh, there's a set of troughs and you have to put the pellets in the trough and then the cows come, right? And uh, I was a little scared at first because they're a little intimidating and they were scared because I was a stranger and uh, I did that a few times. And then after I did it a few times, I noticed that when I would drive onto the property, if I headed towards the barn at all, they would run to the trough and wait there expectantly for me to give them those pellets. Oh, yeah, Come on, are you going to feed us or not? <laughs> you know? They're always disappointed when you know, it's, I'm not going to do it. But, but they trust me now because I'm not a stranger anymore. They recognize my voice. It's really funny if I take my wife Diane up there with me in the truck. If she gets out of the truck, they won't come to the trough because she's a stranger to them, but I'm not. <laughs> they know me. That's how uh, things are with Jesus. Do we know him? Do we trust him? Do we trust him with all of us? Not just the parts we want to give to him, but do we trust him in all of our lives, in every area? Do we know that he is our hope? Am I waiting expectantly for him to return and to make everything the way it ought to be? Because that's what he's going to do. That's the hope given to us at the end of the psalm. I really encourage you to read the whole thing so you can see how the nation of Israel forgot that God was miraculous. God was awesome. He was powerful. But he gives us hope too. Even when we're stubborn and rebellious, he still fulfills his promises. And he's going to do that through Jesus' return, through making everything the way it ought to be, the way we would love for it to be. So when I look at the Bible now, I look at it differently. When you read something in the Bible, we ought to be asking ourselves the question, what does this have to do with the promise of Jesus and his saving power? How is the gospel connected to this scripture that I'm reading? Because we want to see Jesus in God's story. We don't want to just read the stories and go, well, that's a nice story. That's another hero, or that's another stubborn and rebellious person. We want to connect it to our Savior because that's what the story is trying to connect us to. To try and help us see that He is for us, that He is with us. Let me pray for us, and we're going to sing one more song. (coughs) Father God, we are so grateful that you've given us your story. You've placed before us this incredible panorama of redemptive history. You've showed us that you're powerful. That your love is always at work. That what happens in us is because you're at work in us. God, help us to subject ourselves to to you looking at us through your word. Help us to trust that you have our best interests at heart. Help us to know that Jesus is for us. That he is our good shepherd. That he loves us beyond compare. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.